Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damian Kristoff, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to the Wellness Guys. I'm Dr. Lawrence Tam. I'm Dr. Damian Kristoff. And I'm Dr. Brett Hill. And this is the Wellness Guys Show, a weekly show dedicated to bringing wellness to and lies. And uh, gentlemen, today we have a very special guest and uh, Damien is jumping out of seats because he's been waiting for this from the very beginning, from the first episode and uh, 60 somewhat <laughs> weeks into it now, we uh-huh. finally have the man. Uh, so Damien, would you like to introduce our, our special, special guest for tonight? Guys, this is special to me. It's taken, it has taken us 60 some of the episodes, but it's actually taken me 16 years. And I've worked with people like that. I know that our guest has worked with, um, Jeffrey Bland is one of, you know, my all time mentors in terms of, um, nutritional excellence and, and nutritional healthcare and naturopathic care. But one of the most influential books that I ever read and one of the things that directed my nutrition education and my uh, practice management and the way in which I helped people get better through the, their challenges was to use the blood type diet. And today we're joined by a very, very special guest and someone whose work has changed my life um, through the way in which I've practiced and lived my life, uh, Dr. Peter Diadamo. So welcome, Peter. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, David. It's and, great. And also, salutations to Brett and Lawrence. <laughs> it's great to have you here, Peter. Look, you know, I come across a lot of people on a, on a daily basis um, who say, Damien, how do you do what you do and, and what, are you, you know, what are you giving people from a food point of view? And I, I say, look, loosely and sometimes tightly, my nutrition information is based around blood typing. And people go, well, isn't that a load of rubbish? And I go, well, no, I've been using this for 16 years. The science that Dr. Peter Dardano has is it's pretty solid, and he continues to work on this, and it works every single day. When you see it working on a daily basis for 16 years, you know it works. And so, Peter, could you tell us how you got to the point that you worked out the blood types could actually be playing a role in what we should be eating? Well, I can't really say that I actually pioneered the connection. That was actually put together through my dad's work, um, who, again, another naturopathic physician, uh, much uh, earlier generation, uh, who just simply asked a very simple question, which I think now is probably being asked a whole lot more seriously than it was then. But to give you an idea of just how ahead of the curve this gentleman was, he was looking to see why one-size-fits-all diets didn't seem to apply to everybody equally. No matter how healthy they were, no matter how strong a case somebody made for them, there always seemed to be a percentage of the population that uh, didn't respond to that single type of diet. So he started evolving in his own mind the idea that there were just probably multiple types of diet that would be appropriate for different people. And, you know, there just wasn't a lot of genomic testing back then. He didn't have access to the tremendous wealth of of diagnostic testing we have now to be able to look at individual genes and things like that. And he just happened to think one day, well, blood type might be an interesting starting point. Completely, uh, uh, you know, kind of theoretical. Uh, But then in classic fashion, like some other kind of physician scientist that he is, he just proceeded to blood type thousands of people, and he gradually refined a picture that became um, uh, one that was general in the sense that he could identify there were certain characteristics of the two major blood groups, A and O, that were um, Mm -hmm. useful. You know, in other words, you go that way, you go that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
and and then you know we started refining the picture more, and then uh, this is where I became sort of uh, familiar with his work. I was uh, I worked in his office, uh, you know, sweeping floors and things, and of course you know you sort of wonder about this stuff. And then I proceeded to go get a medical education, and actually, to be honest with you, when my medical education more or less prepared me to think that the idea had no basis. So, mm-hmm. um, everything that I was taught about blood ties had nothing. Was nothing talking about things like. Uh, why it would possibly have any effect on anyone's diet or digestive tract or anything like that. And one of my instructors said, you know, when his uh, book came out, he said, you know, it's interesting. He says, interesting book. Uh, he said, but there's one thing I thought he was kind of odd that he left out. It was the association between blood types and ulcers. <laughs> and I thought to myself, okay, bingo. You know, maybe that's <laughs> yeah. where I've got to do this. I've got to go to the library and start looking up these uh, disease associations and see if the associations can tell me anything that, could imply that there was some substance to what his characterizations were saying. And that, that really was the beginning. Went to the University of Washington Medical Library. Back then there was, you know, no electronic. You had to literally pull the studies out and go to the actual reference volumes and get the studies. But it also gave me access to really a lot of the studies that were done on blood type in more or less this sort of golden age, which was kind of like the 50s and 60s where they were looking at the relationships to heart disease and certain cancers and things. And um, that became uh, sort of my graduation dissertation. And then when I got out in practice and started using it, I was thinking, well, this is pretty cool stuff. And the, the, the advantage of it was that there was just continuing information. In other words, everywhere I looked, I saw something new and some aspect of it that seemed to explain something in addition to what I already knew. Mm-hmm. So, about how did- that over time. So, Peter, how did you, you and your dad go about determining which foods were best for which blood type? Well, in his case, this, the, the realities were simpler. In other words, he, he got able to get it to the point where he could say, well, you know, these people make better vegetarians. These people seem to be better on more of a plant-based diet. These people seem a little bit more of an idiosyncratic type thing. So his basic characterizations were a little bit more of a wash of watercolor. Mm-hmm. Um, the next step down from that was um, the fact that actually, you know, being a naturopath and having had a pretty good education in, in uh, botanical medicines and natural uh, pharmaceuticals, you, you become aware of the fact that plants contain large amounts of uh, molecules that are capable of causing certain types of agglutination reactions. And uh, when the discussion turned around to these chemicals that are they're called lectins and in, in common polyanthers, so sometimes they're known as uh, uh, agglutinins or hemagglutinins. Uh, but basically, these proteins cause cells to get clumped together, and uh, their purpose is actually to protect uh, seeds and things, you know, to allow them to germinate. Uh, so they kind of serve a purpose in the bigger scheme of things. But most of our diet, when you think about it, most of our diet that comes from plants, most of the protein content comes from, you know, embryos of some form or another, right? Seeds and, and legumes and things like that. So, uh, nature puts in these molecules to sort of protect these guys until they can germinate. Uh, but they also wind up then interacting sometimes in places that, you know, we don't really predict easily. For instance, we know that uh, I'm type A, and, and there's a protein in, in many types of beans, in lima beans, a perfect example. And if you take my blood and uh, just drop an extract of lima beans on my blood, it'll clump up. But if you, you give that same extract of lima beans to my wife's blood, who's, who's type O, nothing will happen. 
So these molecules that cause these reactions, many of them are common in foods, and many of them are blood type specific. So the other aspect of it was to understand um, this molecular basis of how foods interact, given what we know about blood types. And and, and the reader should, re- listener should really understand that that we're not oftentimes talking about blood when we're talking about blood types. We're talking about the lining of the digestive tract probably more often than we're talking about blood. Mm-hmm. Because the thing that makes me an A or makes somebody a B is a molecule that's found throughout the digestive tract and in many of our organs, many of our secretions. The mucus that kind of protects our barriers and uh, vaginal secretions, semen, sweat, perspiration, saliva. Most people can be blood typed to any of those uh, those fluids. And, and, and so we have to ask the bigger question is, what the heck is your blood type doing in all these other fluids? Uh, yeah, we right. in medicine not ever ask that question. We always go, well, gee, the reason <laughs> you have a blood type is to mess up some guy's transfusion. Uh, and, and that's obviously not what nature made. You know, nature had no interest in transfusion. So it just happened to be a very unique way of being able to understand why some people got very sick when they got the wrong blood type. But that has become the reason we have blood types in most physicians' minds, and it has nothing to do with it. Right. Peter, no, there might be some people who are listening who have never heard of your work. Could you summarize, um, you know, quickly, you know, the types, the different blood types and how it affects, like, the types of foods or um, the things that they should be avoiding in, in those four blood types group that you have uh, outlined in your book? Sure. I mean, the simplest way you can do this whole thing is to simply just get your ABO blood type, which is the thing that makes a person an A, a B, an O, or an AB. Mm-hmm. Now, to even make it even simpler is that you have to realize that in 100 people, 85 are going to be either A or O. Mm-hmm. So blood type A and blood type O are like the 800-pound gorillas of blood types. They monopolize in terms of the numbers of people. Yeah. About 9% are type B, and about 2% are type AB. So the other two blood types don't comprise much more than 10% of the total population. And they have their own idiosyncrasies as well. But when we talk about the major signposts, you go this way, you go that way, you're really talking about A and O. And the signpost is a very useful one. It simply says, who is going to do better on the more low-carb, high-protein paleo diet, and who's going to do better on the more plant-based, Mediterranean, vegetarian, Asian diet? And the answer to that is, type O does better on the caveman, and type A does better on the rabbit food. Mm. So, <laughs> Which is exactly, it's exactly what we see here, because Lawrence, Lawrence is a type A blood person, and he is Asian, and he was vegetarian for a long period of time, and uh, and has recently started eating a bit more animal-based protein, but he, you know, and he does well from a little bit of animal-based protein, but did really well being vegetarian. Now, I've, I'm, I'm an O, and Brett's an O, and we'd rather eat the things that eat the leaves. I'll actually eat the leaves, and uh, that's just the way that we see it, you know. That's why I always feel like someone's going to come after me. <laughs> but, you know, Peter, I often, and I've seen this, and just in really quick summary, I've identified that people who are going wrong with their diet tend to crave certain things that are really wrong with 
you know, that, that have a bad response to them. And I know that you'll be able to shed more light on this. But I've noticed that when an A-type blood person is going really bad, they're craving that soft, white, fluffy stuff is what I like to call it. So they're craving the bread, the cereal, the pasta, the white rice, the cakes, all those sorts of things that are sugary. And they, they tend to feel good on that for a short period of time. But, of course, it does a world of damage to their body. And then the O-type blood person craves that stuff when they're doing a really bad job. And, and then subsequently, the O-type blood person doesn't thrive when they're eating lots of plant stuff without eating the, o, the, the, the meats and the proteins. That's just really rough, what I've found. But can, can you tell us more about why that might be that, you know, we might crave stuff that we're not supposed to eat? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, people always try to, you know, explain how things relate to them. And so sometimes you hear people say, you know, I've always eaten this way. and I've always felt better when I ate this way. Uh, but of course, you know, I'm still in practice. And so the other side of the coin is I usually wind up getting somebody and then giving them a diet and having the person go, you know, I, I don't know if I can do this. It's just so different than the way I, I've done things. And you go, well, of course, that's probably what got you here. But well, I've had 10 dollars for every person that Would you expect that. me to have said that everything you were doing up until now was wonderful? You probably wouldn't be the doctor's <laughs> office. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so the other side of the coin is, is that, you know, there's this notion of uh, intuition and stuff, but, I think most people get, you know, maybe more of it wrong than right. The the, the reality is interesting, though, because, um, you know, there's an interesting... We said before that blood type does a lot in your digestive tract, and, and one of the things it does really well is turn on an enzyme in your small intestine that's responsible for breaking down fat, assimilating cholesterol, and increasing the chances that you're going to suck up all the calcium in your food. Mm. That enzyme is almost three times higher in people who are blood type O than it is in people who are blood type A. Wow. And so guess, now, now if that's interesting enough, guess what turns on this enzyme? Protein. So you have a situation where in a person who has three times higher level of an enzyme that helps them assimilate calcium, break down cholesterol, and split fatty acids, uh, and by the way, I might also say repair the lining of their mucosa, repair the lining of their intestinal tract, three times higher in people who are blood type O, and the enzyme is turned on by protein. So, <laughs> there you go. That's a pretty strong case right there. Yeah. Uh, now, the interesting thing is that we've seen again and again that it's counterintuitive, but when you take an O and you put them on a good, high-quality, paleo kind of thing with the grass-fed and the this and that, their cholesterol goes down. Yeah. So the bigger issue here is what what's what's this say about the nature of the kind of uh, epidemiological advice we're giving people about the nature of cholesterol? You go talk to any dietitian, and they will tell you, don't eat too much meat because if you're postmenopausal, it's going to cause your bones to thin. Yeah, and there's all sorts of new stuff in the literature saying, guess what? That's wrong. The theory was that if you ate a lot of meat, your body got very acidic and your body then robbed the calcium to balance the acidity. But yeah. now they turned around and go, well, you know, that was a largely a kind of a theory, but it turns out when we study people, we're finding that there's a subset of people who respond to the increase in protein, not with robbing their bones, but with rather with increasing their absorption. And wonder who those people are. The O's. So now you look so, at the other side of the coin, and you don't have to go too far to find a website to tell you that soy is the worst thing in the entire world. Everybody should genuflect and make the sign of the cross and put garlic around their neck anytime they get close to a piece of tofu. <laughs> All right. The the reality is again, it's that one size fits all, low effort thinking. 
There are certain people in this world, type A, if you look at the molecular biology, a soy in the dot does some pretty cool things. It actually helps their immune system be a better job of keeping an eye out for stray cancer cells. And if you're type A, that's a big deal because a lot of the common cancer cells look like your blood type. So you need all the help you can get mm-hmm. being able to find those masquerading cells. And soy helps you do that. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So, That's so interesting. how does soy? How do uh, blood type A's go with the? I guess the phytoestrogenic effect of the soy. Then, Peter, does that does that affect them in terms of throwing out their hormone balances, or do they deal with that better too? They, there's an interesting thing. You know, we've got the phytoestrogen component in soy. We've got the what are known as the E2s, which are the estriols. Mm-hmm. Estriols are relatively weak phytoestrogens, and so we can break those down into the most common types, which are in, in soy is genistein and diazine. Uh, if you go to Medline or PubMed and put in natural products, just something simple like that, you'll find that there are more medical studies on genistein than anything else ever been studied, mainly because it has such an incredibly beneficial effect on gene expression most of the time. Mm-hmm. So... What we're looking at when we're comparing phytoestrogens to naturally occurring estrogens, or even worse, synthetic estrogens, is we're seeing a difference in scale, but nobody's really addressing it. Most of these E2 estrogens are only between 7 and 10% as, as strong as the natural estrogens, and in many instances, bond to the estrogen receptor and have a negative effect because they're crowding out a more potent estrogen, so they work almost like a tamoxifen. Now, there's going to be situations where soy is not a great thing. It has lectins of its own, and certain people like type O, in particular, one subset of type O, they don't do so good on soy. But the reality is, is that what I've learned in all these three decades of practice is I don't buy into anybody telling me that there's something that's exclusively bad, that's exclusively bad for everybody, because it's almost always the case that in some section of the population, it isn't, that's not happening. Something more beneficial is happening. And so when we go on these big hysteria type things, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, it's like the same thing with fructose. Now it's like fructose is a terrible thing. I wrote about fructose and the glycation in products in 2003. Nobody paid any attention. <laughs> the reality of it, well, nobody pays much attention to it. The problem is one of my my people, and this is a self-serving moment, said, you know, your problem, he says, is nobody pays attention to you because you're four years ahead of everybody else. And if you would just yeah. slow down, he said, you'd get a better audience. <laughs> uh, but the <laughs> well, other side of the coin is... <laughs> it's, it's funny, it's, though, because I, that's, you know, that, that's what Lauren Cordain was saying. You know, Lauren said that he discovered this back, you know, the, the whole paleo thing he, he discovered back in the early 70s. He was talking about it, and everyone's going to crazy. So, you know, it's now come to light that at least, say, 40% or 49% of the population will do incredibly well on a paleo-style eating program if what you're, if we're talking O-type blood. The O-type bladders will do really well on a paleo-type lifestyle. That's what we're saying. His information was ahead of its time. Your information is ahead of its time. And that's what the Wellness Guide is all about, is bringing this information into the forefront so we can actually get this going. What I've noticed, Peter, is that You've gone further than just blood type. You've actually gone, and you, I, I noticed after having read Eat Right for Your Type, um, and then your revisions went into talk about the secretor and the non-secretor, and then what I'm noticing now, which 
I feel really silly because I actually didn't notice this, but you've actually gone further into genotyping um, and talking about genetic or nutrigenomic expression, uh, which I love. That's actually been a topic of mine that I've been reading and researching and, and looking into for a long time, but I didn't realise you were doing it, which I'd love to know what led you into the genotype sort of stuff. And that's an interesting question. You know, I wrote my first book, uh, The Genotype Diet, in 2006. Nobody right. talked about epigenetics. As a matter of fact, I had a conversation at a restaurant with one of the genetic experts in haplotypes, and he kept feeling that the, the notion of these genetic haplotypes was going to be the future. Haplotypes are just clumps of genes that when when you get one, you turn on the other, you know. So it's just yeah. sort of like, you know, if you, it's like you walk into a store and you buy a pair of pants and they say, well, you know, you get a shirt with that, pick a shirt. Uh, so the, the reality is I sat there and I said, you know, it's interesting. I don't know what this haplotype thing is. More deterministic stuff. And I, I, I'm not interested in deterministic genetics. I'm interested in evolutionary and developmental genetics. I want, I'm, I'm one of, uh, I'm one of those people who's very intrigued by that dirty word called phenotype. So yeah. the, the reality of, of, uh, what we said is, you know, I said I'm more interested in epigenetics. I saw I didn't even know what we were talking about. Because a lot of the, like, the, like, journals, papers and stuff, they had just come out. And the reality was that I was looking at blood type again and uh, came across a study that showed that if your mother was type A, you had uh, a 2,900% greater chance of having a ear infection in the first year of your life. Wow. And this wasn't even your blood. It was your mother's blood type. Now, to give wow. you an idea, that's the relative risk. It's known as a relative risk of 29 you know what the relative risk of smoking your whole life will give you lung cancer? Six. The relative <laughs> risk of having a heart attack from cholesterol is two. Wow. The relative wow. risk of having an ear infection based not on your blood type and on your mother's blood type is 29. I said to myself, <laughs> i got to look into this because there's got to be something here. And that brought me into the nature of the... Uh, you know, the, the idea that there were transgenerational influences and that brought me into the developmental evolutionary biology, that brought me into epigenetics, and there was blood type again. And it turns out that we said before, blood type is, most people think it's a complication of transfusion, but they don't supply an alternate answer. Mm -hmm. it? And it turns out that most of the time, your blood groups are acting in the germ cell development that takes place when you go from looking like a fried egg into a human being. You know, you start out looking like a blob, and then one day you grow an arm, and then you grow a, you know, a hand, and then you grow a finger, and then you grow a, you know what I mean? You get, you get differentiated. You turn into something. You get form. Well, it turns out that most of the influence that blood type exerts in our early hours and early days and early weeks is to act as an influence on that, what's called morphogenesis. It's the development of form. And this is curious because it turns out that that explains why blood type plays such a significant effect in cancer. Because with cancer, you start going back towards being an embryo. And so as you get more and more kind of undifferentiated, you become more and more like an embryo, your blood type starts doing more and more crazy things. So again, if you work a lot like I do, I work a lot with oncology patients. I mean, we're using the blood type information to actually put together food programs that work directly on the actually exterior of the cancer cells. So Peter, how can Peter, how can people better understand, I guess, their genetics and, and how can they how does this incorporate into their daily life? Like how can they use that to determine what foods they should eat? Do they need to go and get a test or what do they need to do? 
Well, you know, the great thing about phenotype is it really appeals to the cheapskate in me. And <laughs> the reason I say that is because when I started out wanting to write the genetic book, I was like everyone else thinking this was going to start taking the shape of things like SNPs and gene panels and all sorts of other things. And then I got more into epigenetics and realized that it was no. It, those things are nice, but they're not very helpful. You can get a SNP that might give you some insight into somebody's specific situation for one thing, but again, there's all the developmental parts that don't get addressed in that information. And if I can just take a moment to just tell the story, it'll illustrate a point. If you look at a young couple, you just get married, and you go and you want to actually get your first house. So you go to an architect and you sit down with the architect and the architect says, okay, what's on, what do, you, what do you want? And the wife says, oh, I want a slate roof. I think it's very charming. And the architect puts down slate roof. And you say then, the husband says, I want copper gutters because I know that they'll have no upkeep. So now the architect writes down copper gutters. And the wife says, I want wood shutters because I think they're very charming. And the husband says, I want cedar shingles because I think they're insect resistant. Okay. <laughs> So then he dutifully puts out this blueprint that's got all this wonderful stuff. But then at a certain point, you meet the contractor, okay? And the contractor says, uh, it's going to cost me $970,000 to build this house. And the couple says, well, our budget is $450,000. And the contractor says, well, this is what you've got to do. You've got to now use aluminum siding. You have to probably go ahead and use uh, vinyl gutters. And you have to make compromises. So the bigger question in life and the bigger question clinically is what is the thing we should be measuring? Should we be measuring the blueprint or should we be looking at the house? Because the house is going to be reflective of the process of the environment exercising a sculpting effect on the blueprint, the genotype, the genome. Mm -hmm. And that's really where I became looking at things, strangely enough, that didn't involve a lot of genetic testing, taking fingerprints, looking to see if the left side of a person's body was similar to the right side of a person's body, um, doing measurements between certain bones in the legs and comparing the legs to the torso. Uh, all of this you could teach a person to do. I mean, it's not all, you need a piece of paper and some ink to do a fingerprint. So what these things then did is I could take all of these independent kind of observations and put them in a statistical package that I wrote and see over time, how do these things group together? Did blood type O go with this particular pattern of fingerprints? And did it go with this particular reflection with regard to how if the index finger is longer than the ring finger? How do these things group? And it became the basic sort of core of what became another way of typifying people. And that became essentially the, the genotype uh, diet system, is that it became almost a weird thing, and I wound up writing a book. I'm probably the only diet author who wrote two different diet systems in a, in a single career, and, and everybody <laughs> loves it. You know, and, and it turns out that there's sometimes they're a little bit conflicting, because if you look at the blood type system, you're looking at adjusting the person to the gene. Mm. But if you look at the work with epigenetics and the genotype, I'm looking to adjust the gene to the person. Mm. Mm. Big difference. Yeah, I'm going to read this book. I'm just about to buy it, actually. I've, I've jumped onto your website and I've, I've put it, I'm clicking on it to purchase now. I do two things at once often, Peter, so that's what I tend to do. But uh, I'm just absolutely I'm fascinated by this sort of stuff. I think it's, it's quite incredible. One of the things I suppose I'm cautious with at the moment, Peter, uh, is that a lot of people 
a swing in between different fads. You know, we've seen people go into um, vegetarianism. We've seen people go um, as far extreme as um, Atkins. We've also then seen people do somewhere in between. Maybe let's talk about paleo at the moment. People have also done blood typing. And, uh, and I suppose many people are left wondering, well, now what am I supposed to do? Now, I noticed that you've got something on here that enables people to genotype themselves. They can find out what their genotype is. Is that potentially a good thing that people could do they could start with? I think it's the last little piece here. We had some static on the phone. Oh, did we? Sorry, I was just saying that could, could it be that people should start by, you know, in trying to work out what's the most appropriate way for them to eat? Should they look at their genotype? Would that be the place to start or should they look at their blood type? What's the best the way to go? Place to, yeah, basic place to start is to simply just get your blood type. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because, and this is actually an interesting thing, because you'll also sometimes go to places on the Internet and say, you know, it's a completely unscientific system, this guy said. There's no studies to back it up, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And the reality is, to a certain degree, that is true. There are no large-scale studies that show that if you take 15,000 people and you put them on the diet for their blood type, this is the end result. Mm. Let me explain why. Um, we can't even do a study on a single nutrient in a population doing a diet intervention that doesn't involve an hideous amount of money because in these diet interventions, you have to control the diet and you have to control what people do and how they report statistics. This gets very expensive to pay for somebody's food for an entire year times four. Yeah. So the the reality is it's a little intellectually dishonest to say that the reason that there's no studies on this, you, you, you have to look at this information as almost being what we call a heuristic. And a heuristic is not a statement of fact. It is a rule of thumb. A rule of thumb that would say, for instance, this is an easy thing to do. Now, the reason I bring this up is because I was just reading yesterday that actually Einstein's first paper was actually titled A Heuristical View of uh, like Particle Physics and Things. And so even back then, when you were a physicist and you could posit a certain thing that people may or may not be able to have the technological basis to go through a complete factual proving, you could still say that it is better to know this than it is to not know this. And that this may, um, we're not saying that this couldn't possibly be wrong in some instances, but it still has value. There's going to be some people that if you put them on the diet, and it turns out to be roughly 2 out of 10, that the ABO isn't going to be good enough and you've got to get it a little further along. But 8 out of 10 people... And this is an interesting fact, because we have large numbers to support this. Something like 8,000 people are able to say, you know, if I just do the basic ABO diet, I am satisfied for what it's done for me. And the, 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 the take-home message is not that there's 7,000 satisfied people, but rather that roughly 3,000 were satisfied on a diet that was completely antithetical to the diet that satisfied the other 3,000. Hmm. Okay, same level of satisfaction, two diametrically different diets, just by simply isolating that one single genetic difference. Blood group. So that's the, that's the beauty of just simply large numbers. And it's the beauty of the fact that ultimately I just, maybe this is me personally, but I feel so much more comfortable feeling like I don't have to be a belief system. I don't have to say, oh, this is good, this is bad. So this is always good, this is always bad. My, 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 this is terrible, terrible, terrible. This is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. For me, 
it's everything's a tool. Give me enough information about what the molecular basis of this person can be expected to to do, what can expect it to look like. Maybe it is a good thing. It turns out that maybe it's a bad thing, but maybe a bad thing is a good thing in a person who has cancer. All of a sudden, things change again. So, you know, who's going to, you know, when people start, like I say, you call it low effort thinking, absolutisms, I, I, I tune out at that point. Yeah. Peter, this has been an amazing wealth of information. Thank you so much for your time. I know you you had a busy schedule and, you know, everybody should check out your book, uh, Eat Right for Your Blood Type. And, and this new um, book that you have is Change Your a genetic destiny, which is fantastic, it goes into that genotyping. It's is wonderful. If any, I mean, there's wealth of information in your website as well, which is diadamo.com, d-a-d-a-m-o.com. Um, you should also check out um, your new, I guess, your new project that's uh, coming out um, with the, well, I think, a university. Um, it's a, is it generic? Generative medicine. medicine.org. And uh, you just definitely check that with University of Bridgeport. I think that's some exciting stuff there. So, Peter, thank you so much for your time. Um, you know, really hey, appreciate that. Uh, yeah, really appreciate that. So, as always, check us out on thewellnessguys.com. Make sure you leave your comments below this particular episode. And I'd love to carry the conversation on Facebook and let us know what you think. Tell us what you have done with your blood type and uh, how you actually changed your life and if you've actually been following uh, Peter's work. So, let's um, also make sure you sign us up on iTunes and download us there. Until next week, begin creating wellness into our lives and lead by example and let's change the world's health together. Join us next week on the Wells Guy Show.